There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking at uh, chapters 19 and 20 of Stephen King's novel, It. Now, the bulk of this is really chapter 19. Chapter 20 is quite short, and it's um, it's a chapter set uh, exclusively in in. 1985 and it's one of the few chapters that doesn't have a lot of you know framing or flipping back in time in some way it's almost unique in the book in that it doesn't do use very king doesn't use some of the various devices that he applies in this book to to do time shifts you know flashbacks or frame stories or or the the time jumps like we'll see in um in chapters 19 and 20 and 21 oh no chapters 19 uh, 20 yeah 21 22 um, but uh, yeah the way I'm going to approach this though um, by the way this is half of what's left uh, so the climax of of the novel the confrontation with it in both times it actually happens really quick and uh, in chapter 22 and 23 um, but it takes him as long to do all that, plus the epilogues to the book and the and the completion as it is just to get our characters into the sewer. And that's really all that happens in chapters 19 and 20, although there's a lot of cool stuff in these these chapters. Essentially, it just gives uh, puts our characters in both timelines in the sewer, um, because what's great about this is they're driven into the sewer in both time in both moments in 1985 it's Audra Audra's arrival and her being taken in by Tom that's kind of the way it pulls them into the sewer to kill them and in 58 is the bullies who who pretty much chase them into the sewer so they're both forced in so unlike the competition at Nebel Street where they planned organized themselves and 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 made the attack the attempt attempt to kill it in this chapter they're driven in and I think that's uh, you know key to the story um, because had that not happened you know maybe they would have just survived uh, this the the cycle of 58 and uh, that's it it would just been like any other dairy resident who had encounters with it but didn't actually injure it and then they wouldn't have been pulled back because you know the one of the things I've been really struggling with in this book is this question of to what degree it's it or the turtle bringing them back to Darien in 85. Um, and I think it's a little bit of both. I think King, by the end, is saying it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I still don't fully understand how all the pieces fit into that element, into that that aspect of the story, that it's bringing them back, why it wants to bring them back, why it can't wait. And But then when King deals with this directly in the, in the story, in the text, I'm satisfied. But I think that's in the next, in the next episode, so it won't come up exactly here. Um, but anyways, um, let's let's jump into the text. The way I'm going to do this this time is instead of going kind of page by page, uh, you know, 
talking about the events as they happen, you know, over time, I'm going to, uh, because there is the time flips, there's the time switches. I think for this chapter, for chapter um, 19 and the Watcher, Watches of the Night, I want to really talk about 58 and then talk about 85, talk about the two time periods separately. Uh, just to make it easier rather than constantly bouncing back and forth. But it is well done. I mean, I'm not complaining about the way King does it. The narrative flows easily. You're never lost to where you are. In fact, I think it works really well in combining the two, intertwining the two storylines as the characters are remembering things. It's happening as they're doing things in 85, they're remembering things. And that's why you get the back and forth in it. It works flawlessly, really. But still, for the purposes of this discussion, I'll, I'll just separate them. Um, as for what I'll do in the the sewer chapters, maybe then I'll, it is more important to kind of, you know, do it page by page, I guess. But this one, I think we can manage to just separate them two and talk about them um, on their own. Anyways, they end up in the same place. They all, you know, in both timelines, they end up in the sewer. That's the key thing. So obviously this is a massive chapter. I think it clocks in at uh, 80 pages or maybe, yeah, I guess around 80 pages. I don't think it's the longest chapter. I think um, chapter three, the six phone calls might be a little bit longer, but it's long. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a huge chunk of the book, you know, about you know, just a big percentage of the book. And, you know, it's not the, most important stuff but there is some great things that happen here um basically the time scale will be condensed pretty much from this point on to the for most of the rest of the book as the readers move back and forth between the single day in 58 this afternoon and a single night in 85 so the the basically like early, like morning to early afternoon in 58 is when the confrontation takes place in 85 it takes place deep deep into the night into the morning um so they come out of the sewers in the morning which is kind of symbolically quite good um now one thing i think i forgot to mention last time is the weather because after the confrontation with it at nebel street there's there's rain right there's bad weather and you get bad weather in 58 and uh, you know in at the end in 85 you get bad weather too um but it's like localized in dairy which is a nice little addition uh i just thought i'd mention it but uh it's these two moments in time are discussed for most of the rest of the book in both times the losers enter its lair confront it and use a ritual of chud that is paralleled here um now it gets quite bizarre at times um but this novel really comes together. You know, having read this far, you really get your money's worth for this book, and it's really a pleasure. It's like, makes everything worth it. A lesser writer, you know, would have not go at this as boldly as as as, as King does here. Um, now, the uh, you know, as I said, although the events in the chapters are presented simultaneously, I'll divide them for this uh, for this uh, discussion. Um, all right. So 85. So 1985, we start with Al Marsh's body being taken by, by it trying to rape and kill Beverly. It's really, really brutal stuff. Um, but it's a scene I, for the life of me, don't understand why it was not adapted. Why, how could you not want this scene in your film? Uh, you know, the guy, people who directed the, or made the, the new version. I understand not in the original mini TV miniseries because it's, it's, you know, it's hard to read at times where we see Al Marsh, you know, 
it's basically it's it at that point but in the Al Marsh is taken over by it but you know violently trying to rape and kill Beverly in front of the whole town and the town does nothing about it no one really tries to stop Al Marsh uh, and there's a scene where they're running uh, and, and she's running into the barons and he's chasing them chasing her through the streets and everyone just sort of looks on and we're reminded of the way Derry works like horrible things happen in Derry all the time people will talk about it afterwards but it's not they don't interfere it's like just something that happens in this town like like um, you know it's something that you know you just watch it happen um, and I suppose that's again his whole King's whole point about America overall is that America just watches things and we'll talk about them later or maybe uh, Pearl Clutch over it later but it was allowed to happen so this is uh, really intense stuff though the verbal confrontation first where Al Marsh uh, confronts Beverly says I saw you smoking I see you hanging out with boys what'd you do to them and then he's like ah, I gotta know you're you're still honest and so that's like a kind of a, it makes us think of the early chapter in Wizard and Glass where Susan Delgado is has to prove her honesty and basically that involves a, 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 a yeah like a digital rape um, but here's what Almar tries to do it Beverly finally is able to escape and they're running through the streets uh, but this is after he, he already beats her um, assaulting her verbally for playing with boys and Bev uh, is coming to terms with how she hates her father that's uh, something we get in the 85 stuff but um, I'll, I'll maybe get to that later on but the heart here is her feeling of guilt over her emerging sexuality and that's kind of complicating this encounter because she, she is having physical attraction towards Elise Bill and she is maturing sexually and that's part of her problem with her father obviously and uh, part of how her she interacts with uh, with the losers and part of the way it encounters if she encounters it is through this um, this uh, dimension of her emerging sexuality and here it's being used by her her father um, she escapes to the barons eventually um, and this is, of course, despite the indifference of dairy residents. And at the same time, it commands this now totally insane Henry Bowers to kill the losers. So that's happening at the same time. So, you know, if you think about it from its perspective, it was almost killed. Uh, we'll get its direct thoughts about this uh, in, the, in the next episode, I guess, where he where it reflects on the fact that it almost died in the house at Nebel Street during with the silver slug thing um, but it sort of didn't hibernate but it sort of hid out and waited and planned this so this was a well-designed plan to kill the losers or break them up or separate them or get them to less than seven uh, a more manageable number for for it um, and so it uses Al Marsh and that fails because of the clubhouse and because of the barons because of the space I, I love how the barons become like the the domain of the losers while the sewers Nebel Street this in the city itself is the domain of it it's it's the place that they guarded and fortified the apocalyptic rock fight was almost like a fortification a battle to secure their territory and in there they're safe or they're relatively safe 
um, and she runs in uh, there. But at the same time, Henry is being sort of activated. And then Henry gets Henry Bowers and the other bullies get in on that too. Now, I think this is by this point Henry Bowers has already killed uh, his father. I think we'll get to that in a bit. So now Ben is there in the Barrens in the clubhouse, and Beverly and Ben hide together in the clubhouse while the bullies look for them. And they're li one of them's literally just standing on top of the the clubhouse, and they're afraid how they're going to get out. But Ben and Bev just sort of share a moment where they discuss Ben's haiku, the poem, and it's it's revealed that, you know, who wrote it. Uh, that's that kind of, you know, the question, like Bev's question about who wrote it is, is, is resolved in her conversation with Ben. It's something I think she forgets because she, she sees Bill as the boyfriend. But, um, but Ben, she realizes Ben's the one who wrote it. So they have a nice moment there. And Ben has a great moment, too, where he courageously says, we got to get the group together. Um, and so they have to leave the clubhouse knowing the bullies are out there. Um, now, Henry, meanwhile, is continuing to look for them uh, in the Barrens and other places, eventually ordering Belch Huggins to help him. And while he does this, he thinks back on how he got the knife in the mail and how he used it to kill his father earlier that very day. So um, that's uh, that was so really, it has possessed or taken over or driven to the edge two characters and, and is using them as projections of itself to to break up the losers. Um, and of course, it's also setting up Henry to beat the fall guy, right? I, I think I would like to know more about that, the different fall guys, the people who got blamed for these, these, these crimes uh, after the fact. You know, I, I think things like the Kitchener High Ironwork explosion, or the black stop, black spot fire. These kinds of things also, you know, disasters somehow make the string of child murders like less visible, right? You go back in history and you see the big event. That's what you think about. You don't think about all the all the child murders that that was going on in between that. So it's also another tool of its to distract from what it's doing to cover it up. Um. So anyways, Ben and Beverly eventually locate the other losers playing and inform them that Henry has gone insane. Uh, Beverly doesn't talk about her father, I don't think. I don't remember. Now, this is interesting. A storm begins to form. Now, a storm forms the first time it was almost killed in Nebold Street. It, it, it forms but before the confrontation, before the ritual of Chud in both 58 and 85. Before it happened, it's like a... I don't know if there's a way to go at this philosophically, like a, an Aristotelian kind of sea battle argument. What's it? The, 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 are there future contingents or, or is future things already determined? You know, the argument is if something will happen or if something, if there is going to be, Aristotle's examples, if there's going to be a battle tomorrow, that battle, you know, that, that there either is or it isn't, right? And that's sort of, it's, it's like a deterministic argument, essentially. Um, but when you're dealing with this cosmic stuff, that's what the turtle calls it, right? Cosmic stuff blows your mind, dude. Uh, it's kind of a cringy line that the turtle gives later on. But um, but yeah, it's like, why not have determinism here? There's so much already <laughs> in this story. The, the losers coming together is deterministic in the first place. So I don't mind the storm forming. It's not that it is hurt or damaged or killed. And then the storm is the reaction to that. The storm is almost part of the ritual of Chud. Uh, 
um, or a you know a prelude to it or, or in some way now Bill, meanwhile, while, while this is happening, starts to come to this conclusion that the entire town of Derry is it. And it's something we probably should know by re as readers by this point. But he's trying to say it, and he can't just get, the words just can't come out. He's, he's stuttering badly. He can't speak it. But he's trying to convince them, convince the other losers that the entire town is essentially it. And they can't really survive here. They're going to have to... Um, you know, face it directly, finish the job that they started on Nebel Street. Um, the others realize this is true and they base their conclusions off the behavior of their parents on this critical day. Like they all had weird encounters with their parents. We saw the one with Beverly most closely, which was of course super, super bizarre and wild. Um, but uh, they all sort of realize this, that there's something off even about their parents. And uh, an added element here is while they're while Bill's working this out and he can't, you know, it takes like King uses lines of text from just to say a couple words because of uh, the, the, how bad the setter gets. He really demonstrates it really well. You know, at the same time, you have Henry yelling and the bullies yelling, like teach you to throw rocks. They're getting closer and closer um, to to their location. So. Uh, so Henry and the gang eventually attack the losers at the clubhouse. Bill helps them escape, leads them to the pumping station, which uh, is basically a way into the sewers. And you think this was a way to, to, to it. And I think that's it. Oh, they also recap the ritual chud. chud. They, they talk about this. They, they remind each other what it is. And the reader is, is also reminded then of what chud is, that it's this psychic, duel where you grab their tongue of, of each other and tell jokes until the other one laughs. That's how it was described earlier. Um, and in a sense, that's what happens. But I, I still think with the, the description of Chud, they get in the library some kind of cultural manifestation of the reality of whatever Chud is, I suppose. Um, but anyways, that's it. They, they, end, they, they access the sewers through the pumping station. Um, and of course, Bill's been sort of researching this. So partially it's Bill's leadership that takes them there, but they're, they're physically being pushed by the bullies. So they really don't have any other options. And, and by the whole town, essentially. The whole town forces them in. I think Eddie or Richie ask, like, can't we just leave town? And they realize that's not really possible for kids, right? It's not that simple. So I think that's it. I think that's all we actually have to say about 1958. Um, for this episode, because everything else I'm going to say is about 85. All of cha chapter 20 is set entirely in 1985. Um, but yeah, again, I think in the, in the once we get into the climax, everything just un unravels so smoothly and deliciously that this like you. I don't even have to talk about themes because they're all laid out and it's just all being applied. It's like all the work's been done. I mean, again, this book actually thin if you consider how much is done for you at this point and and that's it's it's a wonderful ending don't don't ever say king has bad endings he doesn't i don't know where that meme came from 
I was like yelling at the at the TV when I was watching it part two that movie, and they kept going back to that joke, you know, of of how Bill Denbro can't nails endings, and that's a kind of a backhanded slap at King himself, and it's like fuck that. His endings are great. The ending of this one is amazing. Anyways, enough on that. Let's talk about 1985. So uh, basically, Ben finishes up his story about the Silver Slugs, which was recapped in the the Bullseye chapter. And they decide to go to bed for the night. Uh, and they, they basically have remembered all that they need to remember. And, and I think Mike basically says that. It's like, if it's all, we're, you remember what you need to. Of course, they don't remember at all. They don't remember Chud. They don't remember the sewers, but they'll come to them as they go into the sewers themselves. Really, really well done again, uh, as, as I said. But Mike's like, I don't think there's more we can learn just by talking about it. We're going to actually confront it. So they agree to meet in the morning and to go into the sewers and do the job. They Now, they have all these um, stuff that Mike prepared, like the, the miner's hats and the equipment and flashlights. Of course, they're not going to have a chance to use that stuff because they're going to be. Uh, um, they're also going to be essentially driven into the sewers on a time frame not of the not of their own choosing. Um, now their hands begin to bleed from their old wounds at this point. Uh, their hand wounds, in particular, and at this moment, they all begin to remember everything from 1958 in a in the midst of all these bizarre supernatural happenings in the library, they eventually like hold hands and kind of control it. But whether it's the turtle or it or something else, uh, I think it's partially the turtle that's responsible for this, but it's, uh, it's kind of a bizarre scene where they're, you know, all kinds of weird stuff is happening. Like at one point, like the, the typewriter starts typing out, thrusts his fist against the posts. Um, Things are moving about, but together they're able to calm that. But it's also the moment when they begin to realize everything. They get to remember more and more. And it's like a third eye almost opens up in their head and they can visualize their entire memory much more clearly. Um, now, and they all start to go their own way. They go to their separate rooms. And Beverly opens up to Bill about her father's abuse and how she, she, she confesses how she hated her father and what that abuse meant to her and is really touching and amazing moment. Uh, Mike cleans up the library because there was a bunch of stuff was moved around and he works to jot down some notes. He says, I'm going to do some minutes. Remember, he's writing a book. He's writing he's got notes and all this stuff. I have a question about that. Like, I'll have to keep my eyes open for that. Like, what happens to those notes? Because everyone forgets at the end of the novel. But Mike, would Mike just read that and not even understand that he wrote it? I guess that's, that's how I'm going to read it. But he starts, he's, he, he goes, he stays behind to take notes. Um, but he thinks the losers still have not fully remembered what they need to confront it and what they needed to confront it in 58. They, they don't, they're not, they remember almost everything except what happened in the sewers. So he's meditating on that and taking his notes. And that's when Henry Bowers arrives. I uh, remember he escaped way like 400 pages earlier was the last time we met adult Henry Bowers. He, uh, um, he arrives and seriously wounds Mike. I don't want to, the language here is pretty rough. Uh, King makes pretty gregarious uh, use of the N-word here. It's all out of Henry Bowers' mouth. And I know King 
like Henry Bowers is crazy and kind of stupid and and simple, um, but I don't know. It's there, there's a criticism to be had, I think, of just how promiscuously that's the word I want. He he uses the word, but here's a great example of that. But the, anyways, Mike is seriously seriously injured. Uh, Mike himself is able to damage Henry Bowers, so it's like a you know he doesn't do as well as he had hoped, right? Um, and remember, Henry Bowers' job here is to like kill several of the losers if possible, all of them if 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 he can. Um, but the other interesting thing is they actually have a conversation first where they talk a little bit about eighty about fifty eight and what happened, uh, and Mike recognizes him immediately. But okay, Henry Bowers basically stabs him, injures him really badly, almost kills him, and then flees. Um, now Mike is manages. He's all alone in the library, of course. He would have died if he wasn't able to do this. He is able to uh, call for help, but the call is interrupted by the voice of Pennywise. So he's talking to like the operator or the nine one one operator or whatever, and and Pennywise is the voice he hears back, the the clown, right? So it is is mocking him and laughing about his uh, upcoming death, but still he's able to get a message through, and so. You know, help is able to come. Now, back at the Dairy Townhouse, which is the good hotel in Dairy, remember, I think I think that's revealed at some point, or maybe it's revealed in eleven twenty two sixty three. Uh, there's some details about Dairy that are introduced there, but anyways, that's the good hotel, and they're all staying there because they're all well off. Um, but Henry, or sorry, Beverly and Bill continue their conversation, and eventually they have sex. Um, so this is a big deal for King. Adultery is is something he usually looks down on pretty seriously in most of his work. Uh, I, I've talked to you know I've thought a lot about this, and you know King he's 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 basically an optimistic writer, and he's also a very ethical writer. I think I think he's very very much concerned about morality. That's why like you know. He focuses a lot on alcoholism, and he focuses a lot on abuse, and he focuses a lot on, which are, of course, these are bad things, alcohol abuse and violence in the family, breaking a kid's arm, all that stuff is is objectively bad. That's not what I'm talking about here, but his morality, his moral moralism often extends beyond that, and one thing he seems to be really sensitive about is adultery, because yeah, it's usually a sign of a very, very bad character, or a fallen character um, in some way. It's, and I'm thinking in the stand, like how in the stand, the characters will often say like, my woman. And maybe that's because it was written in the 70s and, and King's not really thinking in a feminist way, but like how everyone couples in that book immediate, almost immediately. Everyone sort of couples, and then that makes sense, I suppose. But even at the end of the world, these like, this Christian morality about sexuality is still in these people's minds. Um, and But here King is very careful with this, I think. And this it's not, it's, it's not really presented as adultery. It's presented as something that is somehow meant to be, right? These two were meant to be the couple, as, you know, based in 58. They were supposed to grow up and be high school, you know, sweethearts and marry. That's the way it's kind of the groundwork is laid for that. But of course, that doesn't happen. They both go their separate ways. Um, 
and of course, Bill eventually does marry someone who's very much like Beverly, right? And there's, it's common in many times that Audra looks like Beverly. But anyways, they have sex. And this, then Beverly remembers something she did with all the other losers in 1958. It's not clearly lay, laid out here, but it's not, it's not that well hidden either. Um, she says, like, with all of you, I did that with all of you, something like that. It's sex, right? So she had sex with all of the losers, all six of them. How that act, like the logistics of that in the sewers is, uh, thematically, I, underst I think I understand what is happening here. But the logistics of it, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, I do agree with people that this seems weird. I, I just think it, it does have its, it's a, it's, there's a reason for it being there. And, you know, but this is what she remembers at this point. So sex awakens this other memory. And there's always this parallel, right? In the sewer, they remember about the... When they go in the sewer, they remember about the sewer. When Beverly has sex, she remembers the last time she had sex with Bill. Anyways. Henry leaves the library. Now we flip back to Henry, I think. And he's leaving the library and he wanders around the seminary grounds and thinks about his insanity. Where he basically is clear he's going insane. And he... He's been driven insane by it again. This is like the second time, once again, right? Very similar to what happened in 58. And I think one thing that really strikes me about this chapter, and we, we, I talked about this before too when we first met adult Henry Bowers, is how much Bowers lives in 58. He's not allowed to escape that. And it's kind of sad. And we've all met these people who kind of live in their high school years. But... You know, or think like Cobra Kai, right? Where you have all these characters living in their high school years. That's more plausible. Uh, kind of the Al Bundy kind of phenomenon. But, you know, to live in, to not be able to escape your, like, your seventh grade or sixth grade life. It's like, wow, that, that's horrible, actually, if you think about it. Especially, that's the summer of defeats for, for Henry and the, and the summer of loss. But that's where he lives. His, his mind lives in 58. That's my point. Now, Henry gets a ride from a 1958 Plymouth Fury. That's Christine, by the way. Um, Christine is a 1958 Plymouth Fury. Uh, it's, a, it's an Easter egg, I suppose. But it's, it's clearly Christine. Um, before Christine becomes Christine, right? Um, so what's, how does Christine... There's a, like a ritual, right? I guess in the movie version of Christine... It's like was evil from the beginning. But in the book, as I remember, uh, that guy, uh, LeBay, very much similar to LeMay, now that I think about it, the, the, the you know, he could, that, that, the general, right? General LeMay, who was, who bombed Japan and was kind of a anti-communist figure. He's mentioned in 112263, so that's why I think it must be on King's mind. Maybe, uh, LeBay is, is a shout out to him. I don't know. But LeBay did some kind of ritual, I think. You know, somehow LeBay's spirit lives on, you know, crossing over into uh, Archie. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if I do more King books, we'll, we'll look at Christine. Um, but it is. The car is driven by the ghost uh, or the spirit of the zombie or the ghoul or something of Belch Huggins. I guess it must be a ghost because Belch Huggins' body, I think, is still in the sewers. They, I know they come across the body of Patrick Hockstetter 
in both timelines. I'm not sure about Belch Huggins, but anyways, it's the ghost of, of Belch. And he thinks about the final day of 58. So he's having his own kind of memory and, and remembering things. And then the car takes him to the dairy townhouse and he goes to Eddie's room first. Eddie uh, man is injured. His arm is broken again, obviously. Um, but Eddie manages to kill Henry and then he calls Bill. And that's uh, the, the, the end of the chapter. So those are the events of this super, super long chapter in the Watches of the Night. So I guess I don't have anything more to say about that chapter. Uh, and then that just leaves chapter 20. The circle closes. Um, this is, this. I don't know why this isn't just included in chapter 19. I Make it a little bit longer. Make it another 20 pages. Why not? Uh, the point would be have, you could continue to inter swap the timelines and stretch it out a little bit because there is more text for eight, uh, 50, for 85 than for 58. But you could stretch it out and have more back and forth jumps and have like in both timelines that enter the sewer at the same time. This, I don't know if this was a planning issue uh, in the writing of the, of the novel. I, I just think the way I described it would have worked better. But um, maybe the editor didn't want that really long chapter. But anyways, chapter 20 is set entirely in 85 and basically is thematically about the, getting the adults to commit to confronting it that night rather than wait into the morning. They already sort of agreed to do it. But do you still do it now that Mike's dying? But um, they do commit to confronting it over the events of the chapter. We start out with Tom Rogan, who has arrived in Derry. And he's another person kind of driven, taken over and driven crazy by, by it. So that's four, three people so far. Uh, not including the, just the loser's general parents, who also are in some way possessed by Derry. Um, he has arrived. And he's, um, he starts thinking about his own father's death and then kind of flips to have Henry Bowers' memories. So I think this is when Henry Bowers dies. It moves to then take over Tom Rogan entirely. And in that process, basically Tom Rogan begins to share the mind of Henry Bowers. Um, and he basically takes over Henry Bowers' mission. And it simply takes over Tom, right? Now, Audra Denbro is also in Derry at this point. Remember, these are the uninvited guests. That's the name of the chapter where we get how they got to Derry and, and, and all that. Um, but Audra's, of course, looking for Bill. Um, and it shows itself to Audra. And, and she is later kidnapped by Tom Rogan. So Tom Rogan's mission sort of changes. It here is being opportunistic. Uh, the original plan was just to have Tom Rogan finish Henry Bauer's job. Um, but when Audra shows up, it, you know, kind of changes the plan. And the plan then is to have Tom Rogan kidnap Audra and take her into the sewers where Tom Rogan is just killed after he's used up. And this is supposed to be the draw, something to bring the losers into the sewer. So that's all set up in the early part of this chapter. And then we flip over to Eddie's room and the surviving losers try to decide what to do about Henry's death. And there's a line here somewhere where the line is, and I don't go, this might be a mistake too, where he says, like, there are going to be international, interstate fugitives in the morning. Well, there's good reason for that, right? Like, what happens to Eddie? Eddie, you know, who dies in the sewers. The whole thing with Mike, you know, who attacked Mike? and who killed Henry Bowers, right? 
there's good reason for for them for there to be an epilogue involving the law but king never does it in fact mike just or bill ends up living at mike's for like weeks caring for audra it wouldn't have been that hard for the police to arrest them i what did that mean to say they would be internet interstate fugitives is there some moment where they were ta- sat down with the police and they explained themselves in some way and I don't know. You never they're never fugitives as far as I know. Richie goes back, Ben and Beverly go back by themselves, Eddie's dead, and then and then Bill and Mike just sort of hang out together until Audra's better. Stuff we'll talk about next episode. But I'm bothered by this line. I think it's a mistake. Um, anyways. They decide what to do about Henry's death. Uh, they realize they can't just call the cops. Although, why not? I mean, Henry Powers was a crazy escaped mental patient. Um, but they I guess they didn't want, you know. I, no, the real concern there is, even if it's not worried about criminal liability, if they end up in a jail or in a police station, then dairy will be activated against them. So, so anyways, Eddie's arm is revealed to be broken again. Uh, in the same place makes sense and they realize that they must act against it because they're not going to find support in the town so this is paralleling the realization of the kids in 58 that the town is against them they do call the library this is a fun little scene where they call the library and Beverly's like is Mike Hanlon there and the cops answer and like well who's this what are you calling the library for and then like Richie uses his voice to pretend to be a journalist uses his skill as an actor and, a, and with voices to uh, get the information they need without revealing anything to the police in the library about who they are, where they're located or whatever. Um, they then head into the Barrens um, and Bill realizes that Audra has been taken down in the sewers and it's pretty obvious. It's like first they find her purse in the sewer um, they're actually going to go down in the sewer anyways, but they they see her purse and they see her stuff and her picture and her identification. And then it's like, we have to go now, right? There's no more hesitation. Whatever hesitation they may have had is gone now. And the remaining five losers descend in the sewer, into the sewer. And so with that, we are all set up for chapter 21, Under the City, which is going to be a... Um, uh, ritual should itself um so we're down to it we are, i got one more episode where i will discuss chapter 21 22 23 the last interlude and the epilogue so uh it's actually a little bit more than 100 pages but not much there's, there's a lot happening in the last 100 pages it's really packed um with stuff so uh we should have a lot to talk about i'll be able to get my final thoughts about the book um that's it. So I'm looking forward to it. This has been a fun series for me. And um, yeah, but f- I guess that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for, for listening. Going down to town Where the broken hearts stay Going down to lonesome town To cry my troubles away Yeah.